I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose, and what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by best-selling fantasy novelist and contemporary young adult author, Sabah Tahir. Stay tuned. Storytelling is hard, no matter how fluid and composed and easy it looks on the outside. The stories themselves are not necessarily bound by time or even mode of communication, but especially when they are deeply personal, their development and how we frame and package them in order to share them with others can be both complex and beautiful. You know what else is beautiful? You. Thank you for listening to the show and sharing it with your friends, for subscribing to the podcast and rating it, and for following us on social media at Dr. Abhaydandika. So journalists are trained and become experienced at gathering data and transmitting information to a reading audience. But transforming these skills into something new and merging them with your own ideas and experiences to narrate through your own voice takes practice, patience, and courage. And this is just some of what I learned from chatting with the wonderful Sabah Tahir, writer and best-selling author of the popular fantasy series An Ember in the Ashes. She's a former editor for the Washington Post who, by her own admission, is a true music head, especially for thundering indie rock, and she absolutely loves garish socks. Sabah is a Pakistani-American who grew up in her immigrant family's 18-room motel in the rural Mojave Desert of Southern California. And this is the formative backdrop of her latest contemporary young adult novel, nearly 15 years in the making, called All My Rage, a great book which crosses generations and meditates on culture, family, love, and loss. We caught up for a conversation, and I started by asking her about how music became the prime soundtrack to her memories and storytelling. So when I was about 11 or 12, my father decided to get rid of our cable, which I think is something a lot of young South Asian kids probably <laughs> have had some experience <laughs> with. You know, no TV, right. you have to study more. Yeah. Um, so he decided to get rid of our cable. And instead of studying more, which is what I think his intent was, I started listening to the radio all the time. Yeah. And out in the Mojave Desert where I grew up, there was really only one radio station that I liked called KLOS, and it was a rock station. 95.5 KLOS. Yep, KLOS. Yep, yeah. that's the one. That's the one. And at that time, you know, this was the, the early 90s, it was an indie and classic rock station. Now I think it's just classic rock, but at that time it sort of it encompassed all rock music. So I got really into Led Zeppelin and The Doors, but also, you know, Stone Temple Pilots and Nirvana and, you know, all these like angry white dudes <laughs> singing about their problems. And I really related to all these, th this anger and this frustration. And so that's really where the love of music started for me. And then as I grew older, I got into it to rap, into classical, into pop music, um, you know, my tastes expanded. And by the time I hit my mid-20s and started writing books, music was something that was so much a part of my identity that I couldn't imagine writing books without these massive playlists. So um, All My Rage is 
is my fifth book. Um, my first four are, are, are a fantasy quartet. Yeah. And it was the first book in which I actually got to share that love of music in a really direct way. So I'm glad you asked about it. I mean, in, in that way, sort of the catharsis of getting all of this out, you know, in written format, but even for your now memories or, or the way that you sort of like contextualize your life, is, is there always sort of like a musical uh, attachment in, in some ways to both the sort of joys and the, and the pains, maybe? Almost always, I would say. Um, when I am traveling, when I'm going through something, uh, usually music is what gets me through. Um, yeah. Good times and bad, you know, it's sort of, in, in, in All My Rage, there's a, there's a part where a character talks about the importance of Ben and Jerry's kind of being with you through good times and bad. I also depend on Ben and Jerry's, but music is, is, is my prime, one of my primary ways to kind of to deal with the world and to interpret the world. So absolutely, there's always a soundtrack. The, the story of All My Rage has a definite center in the desert and in the Mojave and mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. very much in that rural Mojave culture. You know, you know, like it or not, does it kind of serve as a foundation or an anchor for many of your thoughts even now? I think it used to, but it no longer does. I sort of set myself free from the desert and from everything that happened there probably in like my mid-20s. Yeah. I decided that I wanted to make home people instead of a place. And so my home became my family um, and, you know, my friends. And so I don't think about the desert anymore other than in a sort of nostalgic way. Mm. Um, as you know, this place that I grew up and that I you know, want, you know, recently has showed my kids, you know, I enjoyed showing them that this is where I grew up, hoping that it might help them understand me a little bit better. But other than that, you know, I've definitely let it go. Yeah. Well, is there a sense of camaraderie that links it to other perhaps, uh, people of color or South Asian Americans or Pakistani Americans who who've gone through living up in, in a rural place and growing up someplace like the Mojave Desert? Absolutely. I think some of my best friends are people who are particularly immigrants from all over the world, but immigrants yeah. who have grown up in rural areas. There's just a bond there. In fact, you know, my, my, my husband grew up on American bases in the Middle East, right? So he yeah. kind of understood that connection to the desert and to these rural areas. One of my best friends grew up in a small town in Ohio. It, it is absolutely something that creates an immediate connection to, to other people. I'm so curious, did you ever find solace or even solidarity in nearby people of color, you know, in, in now thinking about it nostalgia, in a nostalgic way, but also even from those formative years with other either Pakistani Americans or even, you know, indigenous or Latin communities in, in the Mojave, do you reflect on, on sharing some bond even with, with those communities as you were growing up? Or was it more of a, in reflecting back that you feel that there's perhaps a sense of solidarity or even solace? I think that um, there were so few people of color and marginalized folks when I grew up there that while we did, some of us did gravitate toward each other. Like one of my closest friends in high school was um, a, a fellow person of color. She was black. You know, I had another friend who, who was Korean. We weren't as close, um, but there were definitely very few of us. And we all kind of knew each other, you know, and some of us were friends. Some of us weren't. Everyone kind of, I think, was trying to survive. And so we all, to some degree, once we'd found our circles, 
whoever were it was in those circles, we sort of stuck to that. <clears throat> and, you know, this isn't to say this was, you know, a, a extremely, you know, that, the, that I was the only Pakistani in this town, but I was one of the only uh, uh, Pakistanis and one of the only Muslims. And so our Muslim community, our Islamic community was actually very, very tiny. And that is where I would say some bonds were created and the solidarity was created because, you know, when you have, uh, for example, during Ramadan, you have iftar parties, right? Which is where you break the fast together. And when you have Ramadan with like five other people, you know, it, it does create a really close yeah. bond. So um, I actually recently, just a, a few years back, I, I ended up sitting down with, with a very old friend who was friends with my parents and who was a, a painter. He's a, a Chinese Muslim man. And we just talked about those old times, even though he, he was an adult when I was a kid, he had kids yeah. my age. We still related to each other just because we had both kind of survived the desert. You know? Right. Well, and, and I wonder if the other sort of area of solidarity you might have with, with other, perhaps a lot of other South Asian um, Americans is the whole motel culture and the, and the yes. idea of what that's all about. And, you know, is that one of those kind of secret handshakes when you know, you know, um, when there's somebody else who's kind of lived and grown, grown up in that sort of environment? I haven't, you know, I haven't met a ton of people who've lived and grown up in that environment. It's actually been rare for me, I think, because it's not always an easy environment to get out of. Yeah. That can be a difficult environment to, to, I don't want to say escape because I don't think that's always the case. I think some people really enjoy that, yeah. but it can be a difficult, difficult environment to leave because so often these businesses pass from parent to child. And so my, my path led me to a very different place. You know, yeah. my, my path took me to, you know, university and then journalism and then, you know, to a newspaper and then into the world of writing, which is just not. And so I have not met many people. I will say that I, when I've been on the road, I've met people who are, you know, South Asian, Indian, Pakistani, Bengali, who, who run motels. And I always feel that kinship with them. And I'll usually tell them, hey, when I was a kid, I grew up at a motel too. In fact, when I, um, when I took my kids to, um, to see my hometown for the first time, the family that was running the motel my parents used to run was yeah. an Indian family. Yeah. And my husband, you know, walked up to them and started chatting with them. They were so warm, so friendly. You know, they talked to us a little bit about, you know, their experience. And then he said, you know, my wife grew up here and they had little kids, you know, that looked just like me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we asked them, where are you from in India? It was just, it was a really beautiful um, experience. And you could tell that they were sort of going through some of what we had experienced, but that they had a bigger community, which I was really really happy to see. Yeah. So, so yeah, it, it is, it is the type of thing where I actually think that because I grew up in such a rural place, I still marvel when I see other Indians or Pakistanis or Bengalis or Sri Lankans, like I still will, will see fellow Brown people and be like, Oh yay. Like wow. I'm not alone. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I'll, I'll always gravitate toward them. You know, even if they're kind of like, uh, what? you know, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll always do that. And the difference between, you know, it's so striking, the difference between growing up in Ridgecrest versus being in someplace like Jackson Heights or Cerritos or, or mm -hmm. you know, San Jose up in the Bay Area where right. you know, today, the, you know, you could have seven kids in your class named Sean. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with author Sabah Tahir. Stay tuned. The thought of you, I 
Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with best-selling author Sabah Tahir. I'm curious about the navigation through the journey you just mentioned in in that going from going from university to being a journalist, to being an author and a writer. When you made that leap from being a journalist to a fantasy novelist, was that a natural move? Was there some simplicity or some ease to that? Um, to to leaping into this sort of creative um, venture, or, or was it complicated and it required practice uh, for for you to do? What was that transition like? It was it was really complicated. Yes, it was really complicated. It was a, it was a huge shift and a very weird shift. People did not understand why I would leave. I, ha- I was working as an editor at the Washington Post. It was a really great place to work. I was one of the one of the you know a handful of South Asian journalists in the newsroom. Um, at the time, the, the other, I think the biggest journalist we had was um, uh, Rajiv Chandrasekharan, who is, you know, still, still in, I think, in journalism um, and who was an incredible writer, reported from Iraq and was one of, one of the folks who, who, who reported from Iraq very early on. But there were not that many of us. And so I actually, I took maternity leave and my husband, I'd been working on my fantasy book for a couple of years, sort of in the spaces that I had time. And my husband had said, you know, maybe this is the time for you to just write this book. And I kind of teased him was like, you know, you just want me to stay home, you know? And he was like, no, I mean, I think you should, you know, you should get help and you should actually set time to, to write. But I, I don't know if it's ever going to happen if we don't just bite the bullet and do it. And so he was the one who actually encouraged me. And then it was another four years of raising kids, moving a few times um, and, and trying to keep this connection to the dream the entire time I knew I wanted to be a writer of fiction. I wanted to be a writer of books. I wanted to tell stories, but I had no idea how to go about it. And it took me a grand total of six years to really get from the the inception of the idea all the way to getting an agent um, and then getting a publication deal. It was a very long journey. And honestly, I think there would have been much more judgment from friends, family, whatever, if I hadn't succeeded. Right. I think they would have been like, God, what a, you know, what a waste, what a, you know, what, what, a, what a shame that you, you know, you wasted, you know, that part of your career, but I, I have to believe, yeah. you know, and that was the hardest part. The hardest part is believing and thinking, okay, because look, our, I think a lot of our communities, I grew up with this sort of idea that like, you know, it's, people know this, they've heard it a million times, you know, doctor, engineer, lawyer, those are the safe jobs. Those are the jobs that you do. Those are the jobs that guarantee that you, you can take care of yourself, your family, your future. Um, and I completely understand, right? Because of, of of the fact that so many of us had parents who gave up a lot when they came here, and that included security. They wanted that for us. So, so it was a, a big leap. But I, I was really fortunate in that I had the support of my family. Yeah. You know, my my parents were kind of like, yeah, we we, we figured you'd, you'd get there eventually. You know, right. they we knew were, we were we were waiting for this to happen. We're waiting for this. Yeah, yeah. you were waiting for this. So, um, so I was fortunate in that, and I think that. You know, as we speak to uh, a community, many of whom are our fellow brown people, speaking to the young people in your life and encouraging them that way yeah. is like the greatest gift that you can give them. You know, even if it's a career that makes you nervous, you know, whether it's writing or, or acting or, you know, it's, yeah. I, I get it. I'm a parent, too. And it, it is a little nerve wracking. But but giving young people that encouragement to say, you know, I, I believe in you and I think you can do this, you know, and or, or encouraging them when they're in their late teens and early 20s it's huge. It's life altering. It was life altering for me. And and I wonder if part of that 
you know, was this balance between that backdrop of like safety and security and, and what it means to perhaps your, your parents, your family, and how they either nurture that. And, and then also the sort of yearning and the blossoming of something that's always sort of been in you to create mm-hmm. and to, you know, capture, capture this. Um, was that where the ease came or, or was there some practice involved in saying, hey, I've never done this before? Oh, definitely practice. I had no idea how to write a book. I did not. I mean, it doesn't matter how many books you read. When you sit down to write it, it's the difference between like watching a bunch of documentaries about mountain climbing and then actually trying to climb the mountain. It's completely different. (laughs) You know, once you're on the mountain, you're like, ah, what did I get myself into? You know, so it took, I mean, I must have written, gosh, dozens and dozens of drafts of my first book. Sure. Now I have a rhythm. Now I get a sense of what a story feels like when I think it's going in the right direction. But at that time, it was all new to me. There, there's a, this is, of course, in, 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 in reference to this really superb line in the book. But I'm curious how much relaxed fit racism you've perhaps experienced or perhaps <laughs> continue to experience, um, you know, as, as, with this backdrop of you know your your Mojave experience, your university experience, your your experience as the as the daughter of immigrants. Um, well, so when I was young, it was much more intense. It was much more intense. I mean, it was daily. It was microaggressions. It was macroaggressions. It was you know racist teachers. You know, teacher telling my my parents that you know I didn't speak English, which was completely untrue. Um, you know, wanting me to 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 not be in their classes. Um, it was parents not wanting me to hang out with their children. It was really direct. Yeah. You know, it was something that was very direct. As I got older, and I think it became less socially acceptable to be a racist, um, it, then it was quieter. It was, you know, oh, well, um, I'm surprised that you're allowed to do A, B, or C considering your background. Or um, can I call you, you know, can I call you S instead of Saba? You know, like thing, things like that, that that just they're small, but when they add up, they do create a sense of isolation and of frustration. And absolutely, we get through them. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, I sit there dwelling on them and, and weeping into my, my chai, but I, I do think that they build up. Um, and a lot of writing All My Rage was about taking those, that built up anger and trying to make something productive out of it and trying to put it into the world. Does rage always need an audience? Or a platform it is I don't it, and and did, by the way does it have an endpoint or even or is it just continual in that way? I don't think that rage needs an audience or a platform, but I do think it needs acknowledgement. Yeah, rage needs to be allowed to exist, right? So there was this um, like Twitter kerfuffle many years ago where some magazine had put a picture of you know, an angry brown man at it, but Muslim rage on the cover and all these, you know, all of the Muslims, you know, on Twitter were cracking up and sort of saying like, Oh, you know, somebody, somebody took my spot at the grocery store, hashtag Muslim rage, you know, like right. just, just sort of to, to try to, um, to try to make light of something. But, but when I consider the way rage is punished, if it is exhibited by anybody who is not white, it's, it's pretty tragic, right? Like if, a, if a black man is, frustrated and angry that he is being, you know, cuffed when he shouldn't be, when he didn't do anything wrong, that's considered dangerous. 
if a brown man or a, a brown woman is, is expresses rage, that's considered a threat or aggressive, right? Um, if a child Think of, think of how the media treated Greta Thunberg, right? If a child exhibits rage or a young person, or, or Malala Yousafzai, if a young person exhibits rage, that's considered naive and yeah. childish, right? And so I, I think that's tragic because it's a natural human emotion. And sometimes we need to expel it and we need, we need acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to be able to say, this is how I feel. And that is legitimate. And so that's a lot of what, all my rage is about is acknowledging the frustration, the rage in young people who are just quite frankly dealing with too much. I, I, that's interesting because it, for me also links to this notion of being stuck. And sometimes that, that catharsis of, of needing to sort of unstick yourself. I've read that you said that bullet with butterfly wings by smashing pumpkin such a seminal song for you and and as i as i think about that line despite all my rage i'm still just a rat in a cage i'm struck by that notion of being stuck you know whether it's in a particular place or in a particular emotion has trying to combat that been sort of a motivator for you to sort of like empower you and others to not be stuck yes I try to write about what happens when you get through something, right? Like what happens after, for example, the grief, the loss, the war, um, the, the struggle, what happens after, like what lives in the space after you survive something? That is so much what my work is about. And ultimately, I come back to this idea of hope, that, that, that my hope is that for, for young people especially, hope lives in that space and the idea that things can be better and that we can find our joy and we can find peace and we can find camaraderie and friendship and, and we can create a world for ourselves that's better than maybe the world that we were thrust into or the world that we were given. That's so much the reason why I write, you know, it's what kind of gets me through the writing process every day is like, this is, this is my message. Yeah. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with best-selling author Sabah Tahir. Stay tuned. I'm Abhay Darnikar, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with author of the new young adult contemporary novel, All My Rage, Sabah Tahir. One thing I loved and appreciated so much about All My Rage was the multi-generational voices that you shared. Mm-hmm. That, that was really you know, powerful and, and amazing. Did, did your own vantage point uh, now as a parent lend to some empathy in, in writing those voices? Absolutely. Oh my goodness. I mean, I think so many people go through this no matter where they're from, but when you start to hit your, your thirties, your forties, and I don't even think it requires a person to be a parent. I think you just get to a place where when you're an adult, you're like, wow, I really should have cut my parents some slack. Like what they were going through is probably something that I can never understand. Mm. So I wanted to share the the perspective of the character Mispa. So so um, All My Rage has three main characters. It's Noor and Salahuddin, who are the, the, the teenage characters. And then Mispa, we start her story 
as a teenager, but she's actually Salahuddin's mother. Um, and we follow her as, as she, you know, journeys from, uh, from South Asia to America and kind of what that journey is like and how it, how deeply it's linked to what happens to Sal and, and Noor as they grow up. And to me, it's like the story of us isn't always complete without the story of our parents. Mm. Whether that story is good, bad, whether we have a positive relationship with them, a fraught relationship, they are so often a part of us because for, for many of us, they are the only, they are the only understanding we have of where we came from. Because we don't spend a lot of time in those places. Sure, we might visit India, we might visit, you know, Bangladesh or Pakistan or Sri Lanka, but but we don't live there. Yeah. And we're not soaked in that culture. We were not born and brought up in that culture. So they are, they are the only way that we fully understand it. They and a lot of our other elders, right? Aunts and uncles and grandparents. So I wanted to share that part of the story because I felt like to understand what Sal and Noor are and who they are, we have to understand where they came from. And the best way to do that was to share the story of, of this woman um, who, who, who came to America. That weave of those three characters is so intricate uh, throughout the book. And, and I found that as, as I read it, especially leading up to, to the end, there's this beautiful sense of, of closure and resolve that I felt uh, as, as, all my ra- as the story ended in, in All My Rage. And yet the lives of these characters are so complex and so untidy. How much of a challenge was that to accomplish? I mean, I, I was just struck by, by this, that it left me with so many questions. And yet I, I was just thrilled and, and, you know, just amazed at, at that sense of kind of the tidy closure, you know, part of it. I, I really appreciate that because I wanted readers to have a sense of closure. I wanted them to feel the story was complete. You know, I think that we as adults don't always fully understand the trauma that our young people are going through. And it was important to me to have the moments of joy and you know, crushes and music and, you know, jokes and sort of the lightheartedness and blend that with the the tragic and the painful, because that is so often what kids' lives are. They are both, right? They both exist at the same time. So even though this is not the lived experience, you know, what Noor and Sal go through is not the lived experience of many of my readers, I wanted them to still feel that sense of, of the universal that, you know, they're connected to kids who are just trying to kind of get along in the world. They're trying to get through, you know, uh, adults who don't really understand them, adults who have disappointed them and also adults who help them and who um, get them in out of difficult situations, adults who are there for them. I wanted to show how these kids are there for each other, weaving all of that together it was just something that took time. The book took 15 years to write. And the reason it took 15 years to write is because I had to try to understand how to link these characters together, how to give them a neat story that, you know, didn't take 10 books, (laughs) right? And also how to say what I wanted to say, how to kind of compress it down into one story and one book. Um, And that just, that took a lot of time. Perfect. By the way, are you wearing garish socks at the moment? Am I? Yes. My socks are like art. Um, they're, they're like um, they're multicolored. They're 
blues and orange and purple and they have like the argyle pattern on them which i was one of my favorites just for you i decided to wear a garish socks today i'm gonna try and show them to you <laughs> i just want to tell you that i i yeah i particularly <laughs> I said for, yes for saba this I, i'm so thrilled about this it's going it's garish sock time so i love um, those that's great i read that you talked about books like seven daughters and seven sons mm-hmm. opening a window for you as a young reader and Mm -hmm. really sort of resonating. What windows do you hope are opened for those readers, young and old, who will take All My Rage and your other books and start their sort of discovery process? That's a a wonderful question. Um, I hope that my books are two things. Um, I hope that they are both windows for people who have not had that lived experience and can can look into it but i also hope that they're mirrors um i hope that they're mirrors for young brown kids and adults um who have not seen their experience any bit of it in in media in books um i don't think that this book represents all people no book can there are so many authors out there who are south asian authors um you know, there's SK Ali, there's Roshni Chaksi, there's Samira Ahmed, there's so, so many authors writing right now who are doing an incredible job representing our people in books. And I hope that I get to just be a tiny piece of that, that that readers get to see a little bit of what this world is like. And, and if they need this book, if they were like me as a young person, and they needed to see themselves in a book, I hope that those readers are able to find this one and, and know that they're not alone. Well, Sabah, I certainly appreciated it when I read it. I hope others will too. Thank you so much for, for joining us for a lovely conversation. And I hope you'll come back and join us again. Thank you so much. I would love to. Thanks so much, Saba. And please check out All My Rage, which is available everywhere. A quick shout out to another favorite Pakistani-American fantasy novel enthusiast in Sakina Laduk Akbar. And a reminder to please consider our global climate crisis with every individual choice and activity. Till next time, I'm Abhay Darnika. Ruckus Avenue Radio.